Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Mark Harwood. Mark leads the Social Enterprise and Economic Development Unit of World Vision, known as SEED, a team of specialists who research, design and support the scale-up of economic development, inclusive business and impact investable approaches throughout World Vision's programs internationally. Prior to this role within SEED, Mark led the development of an innovative approach to helping small and growing businesses to scale in order to achieve inclusive economic development through improved access to credit and ongoing business coaching. Prior to joining World Vision Australia in 2011, Mark worked with Accenture as a management consultant in their strategy and change management division for six years, based out of Australia, Africa and Asia. Mark is currently studying towards his Master's in Social Impact, Social Investment and Philanthropy with the Australian Graduate School of Entrepreneurship. Mark also holds a Bachelor of Science and Psychology and a Bachelor of Business Management. Wow, what a bio. Thanks for being on the show, Mark. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, so I think a lot of our listeners will be very familiar with World Vision, given World Vision's very esteemed status in the Australian not-for-profit landscape. But can you give us some background on SEED specifically? What does the SEED unit do? Sure. So the SEED unit, it does stand for Social Entrepreneurship and Economic Development, but a lot of people get that confused, and SEED's a very popular acronym um, in the sector. So the seed, the seed unit was created um, about 10 years ago, actually, to, to really um, underpin a lot of the work that we were doing in health, education, WASH, HIV, gender. And we realized that even though we are a child-focused organization, if we could ensure that we're enabling the, the parents and the communities and the caregivers to be able to um, increase their incomes and their household assets, that's going to be a sustainable way for us to ensure that long after World Vision leaves, these communities can continue to prosper. Fantastic. That's a great ethos. So, I know that part of what SEED does is is deemed very innovative. And I think you and I both know that innovation is such a buzzword in the sector at the moment. <laughs> we uh, we, we yeah. use it a lot. So, in what ways does the SEED approach actually differ from traditional approaches to economic development? Or in your view, what is most innovative about SEED? And I guess it's all relative, isn't it? It's based on where, you, where you're being innovative compared to other parts of the organization you're working at or even externally. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, World Vision is a large organization and has been predominantly focused on um, child sponsorship funded program and, and doing great work there in, in communities for 10 to 15 years. Uh, the C team was was really was created in Australia, as I said, to, to help those parents and caregivers to, to increase their incomes and assets. But I think the innovation was the fact that we were engaging with the private sector. We were using business-based principles to create development approaches that would then enable them to increase their incomes. And so, I think 
part of the part of the approach that that Seed has had since I've been there for seven years, and we try and we try and keep this going, is that each person in the team has a um, their own portfolio, and they really manage that. and And I encourage them as a manager to be experts in their portfolio. So, um, when I say experts, I say if you can be not only the expert in, in World Vision Australia, but within the partnership and, and really help drive our, our livelihoods and our resilience global strategy and, and incorporate how do we, um, for instance, how does one of my team members drive inclusive market systems development? So predominantly we work in rural rural contexts and if we're working with smallholder farmers, how do we ensure that we're understanding the entire market system that these smallholder farmers are working within and how do we... Uh, assess whether that we need some push factors for those farmers to be able to better engage with the markets and improve the quality and the quantity of what they're producing, or are there actually some pull factors? Are, are some of the uh, value chain actors um, requiring some additional support to pull further produce through that value chain? And so, therefore, it facilitates export flows. Um, we really ensure that even if we are taking a systems approach, we do um, aim to achieve inclusive economic development, and that, and that does have a poverty reduction lens. Uh, and then embedded within that, uh, we have someone else who's doing women's economic empowerment, or WE, as the acronym is known. And so, across all our programs, her role is really to make sure that we are considering that not only are we just increasing household income, but we're ensuring that how is the control of that income in the household? How is that impacted? Um, what is the ability f- for these female entrepreneurs or, or smallholder farmers to, to be able to engage um, and benefit from market development, and also what is what is the um, the control that they have over the assets that they're then able to to make or earn, um, and ultimately lead to to, to positive impact for the, for their communities. Um, and another really exciting opportunity um, is financial inclusion that we're doing in seed. So how does how does either um, the most remote and poorest poorest communities who and and actually ensuring that they're inclusive of, of persons with disabilities or other vulnerable minority groups in their community, how do they take part in a savings group, which is literally coming together maybe on a fortnightly basis. It's all established by the, the savings group group members themselves and their, their institution and their, their jurisdiction. So who's who's part of the part of the savings group? Um, when when do they meet? How often uh, what are the fines if you don't if you don't actually uh, attend? And also, you um, there's actually three three uh, three locks on this physical metal box where they save their money, and then there are uh, there's three key holders. So there's, it tries to reduce corruption and it provides a, a safe way for for these people to these normally unbanked people to save their money, um, but also access loans from the savings group and therefore and also a, a um, almost an insurance a micro insurance product in case. They suffer some hardship during that the savings group, which can go for nine to twelve months, um, and they might be able to um, access some some money that's almost as a as a grant from the savings group, or or even have a say like a no interest loan from the savings group. And I've been there um, to see uh, people doing their their regular savings and and contributing their savings. And I've also been there at the share out process at the end, and you're seeing these women who are dancing around and and singing because they haven't seen this much cash before because they've literally been spending anything they've earned before they've they've earned it. And so um, to be there at the end of a 12 month cycle and seeing them getting this this money and and dancing around and it's really exciting because they then invest that back into a an income generating activity or they might re-enroll into another savings group or go and try and open a bank account because they now have some money to their name and it's quite uh, it's quite exciting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You've made a lot of points there that I want to unpack. Um, 
mainly around women, financial literacy and the private sector. So let's start with the private sector. You, you started there by saying what's most innovative about SEED is that it works with the private sector. So a major reason that I started this podcast was to look at the role that the private sector can play in international development and to sort of reflect on historically what role the private sector has played and why perhaps that hasn't worked. And you mentioned that one of the things that was most innovative about SEED was that it actively works with the private sector. So can you talk about why working with the private sector is such an important element of SEED and in your view, why the the not-for-profit sector may have been reluctant to work with the private sector in the past? I can definitely um, understand why some pockets of, of the four for-purpose sector do are reluctant to work with the the private sector given some of the the previous experiences. But I guess in the seed team, we've come, um, a lot of us are from the private sector ourselves. And so we understand to really achieve scale, um, to embed some of the latest innovations and even utilising technology, we feel like it's it's paramount that you do work alongside the private sector. So for instance, with those those savings groups, uh, we realise that, for instance, even though they are the most um, remote women or, or some of the uh, minority groups within a community, by, by having them go through a process of, of saving money and, and keeping a logbook uh, and actually, actually accessing a loan and repaying it as part of a savings group, that's providing them um, a credit history, which they wouldn't have had otherwise. And so a lot of, a lot of uh, banks are very interested uh, in these savings groups as, as building up a, a network of future future customers of them and, and actually providing them some um, some uh, reassurance that these these community members can go on to access some of their financial products and it's helping it's almost a stepping stone to helping these community members become bankable um, and understanding what they get, what risk they might take on with the bank and and when I was mentioning the the market systems development that is literally working or helping our smallholder farmers that we work with to better engage with the private sector because they can't do it alone. They're not um, otherwise. They're only accessing local markets, and the fact that they can then go and uh, better engage with the with, with private players within the value chain and provide um, a product that is in high demand, is of a higher quality or a higher quantity than what they would have produced previously, that enables them to better work alongside the the private sector. And I remember one of the earlier programs I supported in Indonesia, the the smallholder farmers from a community in Flores had determined that they uh, they wanted to cut out the middlemen. And because they thought we, we are a valuable part of this value chain, we've seen that we are producing these cashews and there's no need for these middlemen. They've been taking advantage of us for too long. And so they actually... Uh, they actually decided to hire a truck themselves and drive their bags of cashews to the nearest port, um, which was quite a quite a way away. And and uh, unfortunately, a lot of them hadn't driven such a truck before, um, and the truck broke down. And there was a lot of issues with with actually transporting these cashews. And they they came back and realised and said, you know what, there is actually a role for these <laughs> these middlemen in, in that value chain. But we just we want to work alongside them and be be a valued member of this value chain. And I think. Um, the, the real value of the program that we were doing was them realising and understanding that without them, there is no value chain. Um, and they, these cashews weren't reaching these these global markets. Um, and so they really were able to then negotiate and, and, and meet with the meet with the other um, private sector players on, on equal terms, which was which was great to see. Yeah, that's a really good example as well. And I, I've worked a lot in Timor-Leste and I remember marvelling there that there had been so much investment into 
uh, female farmers and there had been so much investment into building these state-of-the-art marketplaces in Dili, but so little investment in connecting what those female farmers were farming to the marketplaces in Dili. And so there was this sort of recurring issue of we've got these fantastic carrots or, you know, whatever we're growing and we've got this fantastic marketplace, but there's nothing connecting the two. Um, And, yeah, I think, I mean, market-led interventions is is so key to to our approach and that's a fundamental principle of, of seed because... I mean, these farmers work so hard, and and they you just see them producing these these products under really tough conditions and in really hard contexts. And if they're not able to sell everything they're producing because of the quality or the quantity, or maybe that market linkage is not there, um, just doing a simple analysis, and that's where a World Vision uh, staff member might come in and do a, an analysis to identify what is the market actually demanding because the farmers are too busy to do that market analysis. And so then the World Vision employee can then go back and present the findings and say, if you just switch that local rice rice variety to maybe the aromatic rice or in Swaziland, if you switch some of those cabbages to lettuce, um, the restaurants across the border in South Africa are loving um, lettuces a lot more than cabbage. And so just little things like that, they can tweak and almost diversify their portfolio in their little, their little plot, which is um, – really exciting to see because they deserve to, to be rewarded for their hard work and um, yeah being able to like produce what you can sell don't try and sell what you can produce yeah yeah that's really well put so do you find that most well, well a lot of the work that seeds doing is focused on the agricultural sector or is there work in urban spaces as well yeah so we do a lot of work in in urban and peri-urban as well um i give a I guess, given World Vision's focus, it has been predominantly in in rural, and then the most the most remote communities that other other um, smaller NGOs maybe don't don't work with. Um, and I think a lot of our philosophy is trying to uh, provide inclusive economic development in these regional locations, um, and and actually prevent some of that migration happening to urban centres and that influx of people trying to look for work on the outskirts of um, peri-urban or, or cities. Um, and I guess another example that just really highlighted that to me was in, in Sri Lanka when we're helping some um, some female entrepreneurs to, to scale their business. And she said that by by growing her business with the support of, of World Vision and, and Vision Fund, our microfinance subsidiary, she was able to um, take on an additional uh, 60 women as employees in, in, in her her little her little workshop that was producing um, brushes and, and floor mats from coconut husk, the koya. And uh, she said previously these women would have gone overseas to the Middle East as domestic workers. Um, but because of this program, they were able to stay in their local communities, be, be a mother and a, and a wife and a daughter and whatever it may be to their community and, and their families. And that, I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, certainly. Now, that was another topic I wanted to touch on that you mentioned earlier was the specific support provided to women. This is a topic that we've covered quite a lot in this show. Uh, so in your view, why do women in small and growing businesses require a specific sort of support? Well, I guess we did a lot of analysis and identified that um, the financial sector does um, intended or unintended sometimes have have barriers for, for women being able to engage at the same level as, as their male counterparts. And particularly uh, taking on a microfinance loan, which is what we're doing with these small and growing businesses through Vision Fund. And we identified that some of the, uh, some of the requirements pre-loan disbursement by the local MFIs um, 
really isolated the women um, and, and was a, a barrier for them because they didn't have the, the land title or the deed or they didn't have two, two friends who worked for the government who, who had the type of salary that was required to be a guarantor. Uh, well, they couldn't actually leave um, the, their household or wherever it may be or the local community to travel into the city to, to get their, um, their record with the credit bureau or things like that. So we, we really identify what can we do um, as an entity from, from pre-loan disbursement through to post and, and ongoing technical assistance, what can we do to ensure that women are able to have this, the same access and then post post disbursement, how key it was to have um, to, to ensure that, like, how are we providing technical assistance to these entrepreneurs? Is it is it okay to provide group group coaching, or do they prefer one on one? And and uh, what what timing and what time of day and, and where what, what's the location for this training that you that you're actually conducting? And that was all really insightful um, to determine how we best ensure that women entrepreneurs are able to to grow and expand their business. Yeah. Fantastic. It makes a lot of sense. And I, the the trend that I see is that the main difficulty for women uh, with small and growing businesses is often things like land title and those sort of institutional structural barriers which prevent them from, from accessing the land that they need to run their business. And, um, and often we can't overcome, you know, not all organisations are looking for law reform in the countries that they're operating in. That might not be an area that, that they're focused on, but there are ways at a micro level to try and work around some of those structural challenges. Yeah, and given we're trying to make this uh, program impact investable, we're really noticing that when we go and, and capture financial um, impact as well as social impact, um, there's always it's it's easier or I guess the the female entrepreneurs are more more aware of their social impact which is very interesting and that's what I've experienced at least in, in Sri Lanka and Myanmar where they talk about who their employees are or how they've improved conditions how they've created jobs and and how these women employees are actually benefiting from them scaling their business whereas the male entrepreneurs are a lot more um, trying to sort of give us an update on how they've they've scaled their business and how their financial um returns have, have doubled or tripled so that was also very insightful yeah absolutely okay so this is a good segue into the topic of impact investment so some any impact investment is emerging as or it has been emerging over the past few years as an alternative source of development financing and so what's been your experience of impact investing in in your work over the past few years it's been very exploratory for us, um, probably exploratory for too long for my liking, <laughs> but I think that just goes to show that it, it is a big change um, and it is just a different type of funding for, for the likes of, of a large NGO such as World Vision. Uh, I think it's really, uh, it's really exciting to see the fact that uh, NGOs like us are looking at how we can tweak our existing grant-funded programs to be able to maybe make capital preservation or even have some sort of revolving fund internally or um, even concession returns, which may be below market. But just how do we how do we provide that as a as an opportunity for uh, either Australian impact investors or, or global impact investors to engage with us who who wouldn't otherwise wanted to engage with us? And how does that almost um, how do we leverage that alongside our, our grant funding that we are currently accessing um, to ensure that we can maximise the scale of the impact that we are achieving? So it's been a long journey um, for us at World Vision. And I think we've we've really looked at what are the uh, opportunities for us and where do we have strengths. And I think it's the fact that we 
have this amazing global footprint across our our 90 odd countries that we work in and we we have local local staff in these countries who have amazing relationships with with local government with the private sector um, community-based organizations um, with the chiefs with the elders all the way down to some of the most um, sort of vulnerable community members and i think by being able to leverage that expertise and them sourcing the problems that we're trying to address we haven't just um embedded impact investing for the sake of it. We've ensured that it's actually going to address the problem and enable us to scale a solution. And that's where the uh, the small and growing business opportunities come about by us working with, with Vision Fund who already were accessing uh, blended finance to scale their microfinance. But how from, how from a client uh, retention strategy can we also provide larger loans beyond the microfinance cap up to $25,000 USD that does help these entrepreneurs to go on and scale their their enterprise and then provide um, stable and reliable uh, employment for, for their other community members. Mm. And I think you've touched on one of the really tremendous things about World Vision there is World Vision manages to work at the most micro community level as well as at the highest government level. And it's that ability to span um, those different sectors and sort of consolidate all of that knowledge into your programming that I think is is part of World Vision's success over the years. Would you agree? Yes, I do. I mean, there's <laughs> definitely pros to being large, but there's also um, some challenges that we that we're all working through. But it's it's really identifying where are those pockets that are have the um, the appetite and and the capability to embed some of these more innovative approaches, and and where is there a need, and, and can you see it's going to um, our impact thesis is going to match the, the market demand from an investment perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's an element of impact investment that I want to touch on. Um, you and I were in Jakarta um, a couple of months ago now uh, yes. uh, with Innovation Exchange, and we were discussing the impact investment landscape in the region along with uh, our peers from a number of other organisations. Um and specifically, that discussion was focused on the the network of brokers in the region. So, brokers being the people that connect entrepreneurs to investors and actually broker those impact investments. Um, and, and specifically, the lack of brokers or um, the lack of brokers trained in gender lens investment. So, I'm interested in your take on why we've invested so heavily in entrepreneurs and why we connect so well with investors, but why there's a lack of brokers in the region? It's a big question. <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, and I think when when our team, the C team, start engaging in uh, global impact investing conferences such as the um, Aspen Network of Development Entrepreneurs, the Andy Network, there was always the, the, the narrative that there was an oversupply of capital. And and a um, not the not the not suitable deal flow of, of opportunities investment opportunities and and that has slowly shifted which is exciting um, but at the same time uh, the ticket sizes of investment are increasing and so and just hearing from from the gin at the Impact Investing Summit in Sydney the Asia Pacific one recently I remember hearing um, I think Abilesh from the gin was saying that. What they're really focused on now is yes, let's achieve scale, and we and we're excited that we're crowding in um, sort of more mainstream uh, and retail investors. But the fact is, we want to make sure that we're not uh, jeopardising that impact. We want to ensure that scale is not at the expense of impact, 
and and we were scaling with integrity were his words and that was very um I was very um, happy to hear that hear that statement because that's where we're really operating. Where it's it's really hard to 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 match up these small entrepreneurs with the type of capital they require because it's not going to provide great financial returns, but the impact is going to be huge if we can do it well. And it's just sort of educating and, and working with the right type of impact investors who realise that uh, putting their their capital alongside maybe philanthropic grants, um, maybe having longer terms for the debt that they provide, or maybe it's convertible debt, but realizing that it might not be converted for a long time. Um, that's that's what excites me because um, you're then actually, actually able to provide the type of capital that these entrepreneurs are actually asking for rather than the other way around, which is trying to match it to the investors. Um, and yeah, we definitely need more brokers. Uh, I know I've met some great ones in my travels, but I feel like they're they're the ones that are struggling and if they're the ones who are connecting that supply and demand side, um, I'm very happy to see that the IXC is investing in in some of the initiatives that they are through the scaling front innovation. And I completely agree. Um, I suppose as a, as a bit of a segue from that, um, Australia's investment in the impact investment landscape in the region um, is, is obviously quite a critical part of our international aid investment. Can you comment on the intersection of aid and diplomacy? Because this has been a reasonably contentious issue in Australia in the past. So, what is what is the role of aid in strengthening our diplomatic ties in the region? I think I think as Australia, um, located where we are in the region, it's almost our it's our obligation. Um, as Australians, and we care for our our fellow neighbours. It's 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 an Aussie principle and. Given given the um, the way that boundaries are being globalization perspective boundaries are lowering, but I guess from an inward looking focus in some countries that those those walls are are increasing. So for me, it's it's the fact that it's uh, it's our role to actually ensure that we're increasing the uh, economic development within these countries who who, who share the same region as us, enabling them to be uh, effective as as trade partners. We really look to the the uh, aid for trade agenda that the DFAT has, which aligns closely with our work because it it looks at increasing the productive capacity of smallholder farmers or small entrepreneurs, particularly women, um, and facilitating those trade flows. And there was some research I read that showed that for every dollar we invest as aid into Africa, it, it actually resulted in, I think, it was something like $13 of, of additional trade Australian with those with those same African countries. So it's not only is it the right thing to do, but it's actually there's a business case case for it as well. Um, I know that people also see it as, as a way of ensuring safety, um, but I feel like it's just it's um, it's what we do as Australians, and and the more that we can enable these these countries to to become who they are and to have thriving local economies is is good for us as well. Yeah, well put. And you you just um, I had also read that statistic uh well it's a social return on investment really that for every one dollar invested in aid in africa there's approximately 12 or 13 dollars return in trade um that's an example of a broader move towards social return on investment as a as a quite a compelling methodology we use to make the case for aid um i know that you're skilled in in outcome measurement in your view, emerging methodologies like social return on investment, what role do they play in helping us to justify our aid spending? 
Yeah, they play a big role and they can be powerful tools, but it's just ensuring that we don't um, we don't overgeneralize or standardize across across the way in which we utilize our aid our, our aid funding. As you know, Rachel aid is so um, or the way in which aid can be leveraged is so so broad and so diverse. And I know that it is helpful for certain audiences and um, and government policymakers to understand what is that social return. But I feel like I also um, you don't want to lose that uh, that human aspect or that touch to of actually understanding what is the what is the value of, of that investment that has been made through through aid, and that's where I think it's really promising to see that as well as SROI, there's been other initiatives where say Bridges doing the the impact management project and, and other things like that are really looking at sitting across all the different sectors and understanding, even as a private entity, if we're going to start moving into this emerging market and make an investment, um, what's the type of methodology we want to use to actually measure uh, the type of impact we're achieving and understanding is our is our investment actually going to, get, going to do harm? Is it going to benefit people on the planet or is it actually going to contribute to a solution? And so I think um, that was really promising to, to hear the progress being made there and people who are buying into that across the different multi-sectors because um, I think the, the more that the, the private sector um, trusts and foundations are, are all saying the same language and reporting impact in the same way is only a good thing if you're all going to be um, utilising the same same types of capital. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Okay, there's two questions I want to finish on and I can see that you're navigating a lot of moths and bugs right now. <laughs> <laughs> I've got moths and then I don't know if it's a bat above me, but there are things dropping on my computer ah, from the tree above. Look, that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Very I, floral. I, look, this is the first recording that I've, I've seen someone do from their backyard, so I am impressed. I'm going to stay asleep. <laughs> okay, so two questions to finish on. The first um, – what trends are you seeing in the not-for-profit or the for-purpose sector broadly that our listeners should be aware of? What are the mega trends that are facing the sector that we need to be across? Wow. Um, so I think given my time with impact investing, it's really uh, it's it's shifted from being a, a nuanced or, or a niche market, particularly in Australia. Australia, uh, Europe and the US has really led the way in terms of, of making investments and and making investments beyond their own uh, national national borders, and I'm glad to see that Australian investors are now coming on board and seeing seeing the ability to diversify and and make investments in emerging markets. Um, and the fact that it's no longer considered so niche and off to the side, but it's becoming mainstream. You're seeing the larger entities moving into this space, which is really good. And while I said that, it's also important to ensure that while they do move into this space and are allocating such large capital capital pools and and achieving a certain level of scale that we don't uh, we don't turn turn our eye from the fact that it is impact investment and we are actually ensuring that there is additionality and we're not just um, displacing local investment that someone else would have made themselves if the returns really are that good uh, are we really the only person who is willing to make that investment so um, uh, in terms of innovation, I think, um, I mean, technology is, is 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 being wonderful. It's really enabling, uh, reducing the cost of 
of, of providing these investments, measuring impact, uh, the due diligence required to make the investments as well, because otherwise we we are moving towards uh, larger ticket sizes and more established businesses, as opposed to the ones where it's most needed, who are just sort of early startup or or trying to overcome that 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 pioneering gap. So I think that's. Uh, that's what excites us, and that's where we've been playing for a long time. And the more that we can leverage technology and and learn from great partners, and and actually provide a, a product to the market that is that is um, parable, and, and actually providing uh, providing the sort of returns that they're chasing, that is that is what excites me. And as you said, Genlens Investing, I think um, some of the pioneers in that space have have done amazing things to make it to make it just front of mind that we actually realise that. Uh, it's not something that you do after the after the fact. It's not a way of just counting women, but it's actually a way of ensuring that every step of the process that you're you're doing and every decision that you make is being informed by how are we actually ensuring that those who who require access to this capital are, are having an equal an equal ability to access it. Certainly, and and Mike, you and I both work for organisations that are very skilled in gender lens investing, and and it's really encouraging to see that that is being mainstreamed in the sector and there are so many opportunities for learning about about what gender what a taking a gender lens impro- approach to investment actually means um it is an exciting trend okay the question to finish on what does success look like in 10 years for seed for the seed team yeah wow well first of all i'm not sure if i'd be there in 10 years that's that's the first success <laughs> <laughs> hopefully there's been some some good succession planning um but i think I think um, that Seed continues to, to do what it does and, and push the boundaries and, and and work with different pockets of World Vision and our partners to really um, utilise best practice that, that others are doing in the sector and, and, and outside the sector, such as the private sector, and that we're actually identifying opportunities that, that others can learn from and, and others can crowd in on. So we do have a huge global footprint. We do have um, the ability to... To, to leverage uh, our grants alongside investment that maybe other entities don't have have the ability, and therefore we can we can play around, we can tinker, we can really look to maximise our social returns and and have some have some more patient capital than others might may have, um, and and try and come up with a with an approach that is both viable and feasible for others to to also operate in that same that same context. So. Who knows what, what will happen in 10 years? Um, we'll be able to look back on this podcast and, and laugh but <laughs> and see how closely closely aligned I was. But I think the um, the main thing that is, yeah, that, that World Vision and is, is, is working collaboratively and, and working across different sectors uh, with, with key partners and, and different types of finance than, than we currently are. Perfect. I can't wait to watch it unfold. <laughs> I also have thoroughly enjoyed watching you in your backyard. So thank you for that too. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, Mark. This has been great. Thank you, Rachel. Great to talk. 